This podcast episode was generously funded by two anonymous donors. If you would like to support the podcast in similar ways, please contact Adley Kelly at hkelly at pbk.org. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa. I'm Fred Lawrence, Secretary and CEO of the Phi Beta Kappa Society. On our podcast, we welcome leading thinkers, visionaries, and artists who shape our collective understanding of some of today's most pressing and consequential matters. Many of them are Phi Beta Kappa visiting scholars who travel the country for us, visiting campuses and presenting free lectures that we invite you to attend. For the visiting scholar schedule, please visit pbk.org. This special episode featuring our 2021 Phi Beta Kappa Book Award winners was taped at the annual Phi Beta Kappa Book Awards event, which took place virtually on December 8th, 2021. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation that we had with our three extraordinary Book Award winners. For the first time ever, each honoree is a first-time author. We always hold this event at or around the time of the founding of Phi Beta Kappa, December 5th, 1776, which means last Sunday was our 245th birthday. In some ways, that's a great measure all by itself, but also in some ways starts the run-up now for our 250th anniversary along with the nations in 2026. So it's a birthday celebration in part. And when we celebrate at Phi Beta Kappa, what else do we do? We celebrate talking about books and we celebrate books and we have three great books to celebrate tonight. Uh, So we are delighted to have our three recipients, uh, each of whom is a first-time author. I believe that's the first time that's ever happened. The first prize is the Christian Gauss Award. The Christian Gauss Award is the oldest of our prizes. It was established in 1950 by the Phi Beta Kappa Senate, and it was established to honor the late Christian Gauss. Christian Gauss was a distinguished scholar, administrator, and teacher at Princeton, The winning title for the Phi Beta Kappa Christian Gauss Award is My Autobiography of Carson McCullers by Gene Chaplin, published by Tin House Books. Jen Chaplin has given us a kind of, I'll call it a dual autobiography, a biography of a much misremembered Carson McCullers and a memoir of her own journey of discovery and self-discovery. McCullers is one of America's most beloved writers. As we learn from this wonderful book, our understanding of McCullers tells us as much about ourselves as it tells us about the writer herself. At stake here are issues of identity, queerness, memory, obsession, and above all, love. What and how and who we read make us who we are. Jen Chaplin is a writer and archivist living in New Mexico, My autobiography of Carson McCullers, her first book, you're going to hear that a lot tonight, was a finalist for the 2020 National Book Award and won the 2021 Lambda Literary Award. Jen has a PhD in English from the University of Texas at Austin, where her dissertation, Narrative Salvage, focused on wastescapes in contemporary literature. She currently works as an archivist for a visual artist. Please join me in congratulating Jen Chaplin, the winner of this year's Christian Gauss Award. Thank you. Thank you so much, Fred. Um, 
yeah, I wrote this book while I, as, as you just said, while I was writing a separate academic dissertation on a different subject. So I never quite felt like my little meditation on Carson McCullers and lesbian invisibility and queer identity necessarily fit into a category like literary criticism or scholarship, or even biography or memoir. It was always kind of somewhere in between all of those. So it means a lot to me that you've selected my book for the Christian Gauss Award. Um, since the book came out, I've had the chance to visit classes who've read it, and it's been wonderful to see how this more personal approach to an author's life can impact the way students connect to literature. So I really appreciate being recognized uh, in an academic context that's exciting for me. I'm grateful to my publisher, Tin House, uh, my editor, Emma Kalmhos-Rotsky, my agent, Bill Clegg, and the whole team at Tin House who helped publish the book. I couldn't have written this book without the support of the Carson McCullers Center for Musicians and Writers uh, in Columbus, Georgia, the Vermont Studio Center, and Yado, all of whom housed me and inspired this work. It's just such an honor to coexist with the other two awardees tonight and their brilliant books. So thank you so much. Congratulations, Jen. The next award is the Phi Beta Kappa Award in Science. That was created in 1959 to encourage literate and scholarly interpretations of the physical and biological sciences and mathematics. The winning title of the Phi Beta Kappa Award in Sciences for 2021 is The Sirens of Mars, Searching for Life on Another World by Sarah Stewart Johnson, published by Crown. Who hasn't stared up at the night sky and seen that one twinkling red star and wondered, what is going on up there? It turns out that Mars was once similar to Earth, but today there are no rivers, no lakes, no oceans. Coated in red dust, the terrain is bewilderingly empty. Multiple spacecrafts have circled and even landed on Mars exploring its strange surface, perhaps on the brink of a staggering find. Sarah Stewart Johnson has written a deeply personal story of how she and other researchers have scoured Mars for signs of life. Trust me, when you finish this book, you will never look up at the night sky the same way. Sarah Stewart Johnson is Provost Distinguished Associate Professor of Biology at Georgetown University here in Washington, DC an associate professor in the Science, Technology, and International Affairs program at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. Her lab seeks to understand the presence and preservation of biosignatures within planetary environments and is involved in the implementation of planetary exploration, analyzing data from current spacecraft, as well as devising new techniques for future missions. A former Rhodes Scholar and White House Fellow, she received her PhD from MIT, and has worked on NASA's Spirit, Opportunity, and Curiosity rovers. She's also a visiting scientist with the Planetary Environmental Lab at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Congratulations, Sarah, on this marvelous achievement. Oh, Fred, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm just, I just feel tremendously honored and especially to be recognized alongside Alice and Jen. I feel like I am completely in awe of the two of them and I'm not sure I belong on this stage, but it's just, I just, it's really hard for me to express just how tremendously meaningful this is. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a scientist, but I've been kind of enthralled with language my whole life. You know, even when I was like this little kid, I was scribbling 
around and there's this part of myself that I've always I don't know I've just always really loved to write but I'd, I'd only really written in this kind of technical capacity until really recently um you know and and so much of kind of my day-to-day -day life is sort of like data and there's this very sort of technical way of 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 looking at this problem but what I do, what I focus on as a professor and as a scientist is the search for life beyond Earth. And there's so many things about that search that I feel will never find expression on the pages of scientific journals. And I guess that's sort of how this book came about. But um, so just thank you. And of course, like you never read a book alone, you get all this help. And so of course, my, um, my, my editor, Amanda, held my hand the whole time and, and Jill, my agent, and all of my dear, dear friends who just listened to all of these um, conversations just all the time, like, does this paragraph sound okay? Is this, is this working? And of course, my, my family, I want to thank as well. Congratulations, Sarah. The last and most recent of our three prizes is named for the great Ralph Waldo Emerson, forever associated with Phi Beta Kappa for delivering the American Scholar Address as the Phi Beta Kappa Address at Harvard. Uh, we like to remind people that Emerson was in fact not elected a member of Phi Beta Kappa as an undergraduate, but did become an honorary member. And the Ralph Waldo Emerson Award was created in 1960 to recognize studies that contribute significantly to historical, philosophical, or religious interpretations of the human condition. The winner of the Phi Beta Kappa Ralph Waldo Emerson Award for this year is South to Freedom, Runaway Slaves to Mexico and the Road to the Civil War by Alice Baumgart, published by Basic Books. Most of us have been inspired, I think, by stories of the Underground Railroad up through the northern part of the United States and on into Canada. But it turns out that thousands of people in the South Central United States escaped slavery not by heading north, but by crossing the southern border into Mexico where slavery had been abolished in 1837. Alice Baumgartner sheds new light on this story, examining why Mexico abolished slavery and how its increasingly radical anti-slavery policies fueled the sectional crisis in the United States. Reconstructing that story and its forgotten significance to the story of the peculiar institution of slavery in the United States, took her to 28 archives in three different countries. As we seek to expand our understanding of slavery, of antebellum America, and the cause of the American Civil War, South to Freedom will be an indispensable guide. Alice Baumgartner teaches history at the University of Southern California. She received a BA in history from Yale College and an MPhil in Latin American Studies from the University of Oxford, where she was a Rhodes Scholar. She earned her PhD from Yale in 2018. Congratulations. Alice on opening a new vista of a story that we thought we knew all there was to know about, and it turned out we didn't know even half. Thank you so much, Fred and Peter, and to the selection committees for these awards. I'm just so honored to receive this recognition and to share it with Jen and Sarah. I was something of a dilettante in college in that I was a one-time environmental science major, a one-time English major. And so reading Sarah's book, I was just so amazed at how beautifully written it was, while at the same time being based in science that I at least 
from afar know is very complicated in its own right. And to be able to do both of those is really just astonishing to me. And then my book was uh, based on my dissertation. And I felt like just writing that one book was, was difficult enough to have Jen write a dissertation. And this really amazing book is really just, I'm just so honored to be on this call with both of you. I love reading essays about writing, and one of my favorites, perhaps no surprise for a 19th century historian, is by the German-Jewish intellectual Ludwig Born, which was written in 1832, and it's called How to Become an Original Writer in Three Days, and he's kind of joking about the 19th century fads for how to do something in a short amount of time, and it's a funny little essay that has a lot of little gems of wisdom in it. One of them, I think, is the line that goes, the good writer follows the same path as the bad writer, only the good writer follows it a little bit longer. And I've been accompanied on that path by so many people. I want to start by just saying how much this book and my own like writerly journey has been influenced by my own students, some of whom I know are in the audience, and it just means the world to me that you're here. and. I've also benefited so much from my own teachers, from David Blight and Johnny Farragher, who advised this as a dissertation, to Patty Limerick, who welcomed me at the University of Colorado when I was finishing the first draft of this dissertation, to my editor at BASIC, Brian Distelberg, and the whole staff there was just so helpful. And then finally, to one person who had no institutional affiliation with me and nonetheless just donated so much of his time to not just talk to me through ideas, but also to edit this manuscript, Peter Wood, who's a, a more emeritus professor of history from Duke University and who read very closely two, I think, almost complete drafts of this manuscript. And I really couldn't, I wouldn't be here without all of those people who helped me along the way. So thank you so much to all of you and to Phi Beta Kappa more generally. Thanks. All three of you have very graciously thanked Peter and me, uh, but, but I have to give the, uh, the, the credit where it's due. Our thanks to the members of the prize committees uh, who volunteer their time to read many books, the long list, the short list, uh, and then make their decisions. So thank you to all of you. I think many, if not all, of the members of those committees are listening. Uh, and it must be a great joy for all of you uh, to see now it come to this and to, to meet these three wonderful prize-winning first-time authors. So let's jump in and talk a little bit about how it came to be, uh, all of these books. And you all alluded to this a little bit. Um, you know, uh, Donald Murray famously said that all writing is autobiography. Um, by the way, he also said, remembering may be a celebration or it may be a dagger in the heart, but it is better, far better than forgetting. So I leave you that as well as possible uh, motivation for, for tonight. But if all writing is somewhat uh, autobiographical, then I'd like to start with, uh, with each of you, how you got drawn to your topics and whether there's some autobiography in it. Uh, and obviously, uh, Jen, I have to start with you on this one. Uh, you had the uh, sort of uh, uh, audaciousness to title the book My Autobiography of Carson McCullers, a memoir. Uh, so it's about, uh, it's about her. It's about you. Um, it's about you discovering her. Did you find McCullers or did McCullers find you? That's a good question. Um, 
well, I was not super familiar with McCullough's work uh, when I was a grad student. I kind of hadn't really gotten to her um, in my research. I was focused on contemporary authors. Um, and I was working in the archive at uh, University of Texas, the Harry Ransom Center, um, where McCullough's papers are housed. And I was there, I was an intern, um, kind of just fielding queries from established scholars on their work. And one of them asked for some letters between Carson and a woman named Anne Marie. So I kind of go down to the basement and find these letters. And instead of just bringing them up and photographing them and sending them to the scholar, I started reading them. And they were love letters. They were so enthralling. They were hilarious. They were so interesting. And I just wanted to know everything about these two women. And at that time in my life, I was kind of in the process of slowly coming out uh, as a queer woman. So it meant a lot to me to see this, you know, very well-known uh, literary figure who was in a relationship that looked super familiar to me, but that I hadn't really seen depicted so much in literature. So who found who? I'm not totally sure, but I definitely pursued Carson from there on. I, I uh, ended up cataloging her clothes and personal effects at the Ransom Center uh, as I talk about in the book, and then um, really sensed that there was more to her story, specifically more to her autobiography um, than I had been able to find. She kind of kept trying to write her autobiography throughout her life in different ways and never finished it. So I, I really wanted to find, you know, what was the story that she was trying to tell? What version of her life did she really want out there? Because it was a story that she kind of returned to over and over again. So that's how the title kind of came about, uh, was that it was sort of me searching for her autobiography. But then along the way, uh, my own story sort of gets woven in there as well. Um, so yeah, it was a mutual exchange. Tell us about how you thought of how you situated yourself with the other biographies that have been written of McCullers. Because obviously when you write into an area, it's not just that you have to do the literature search, it's that you're taking your place in that, in that scholarly conversation. How did you think about that? Sure. There are, there are two big biographies of McCullers out there. Um, and one, the Virginia Carr biography, is kind of the, the completest version, the one that uh, includes almost like a TikTok of her life. Um, you know, every moment accounted for to the best of, of the biographer's ability. Um, and then there's a kind of more lyrical biography that was written by a French woman in, in 2000. But what frustrated me about both of those books um, and about the kind of narratives about McCullough's life that had been rehearsed in literary criticism um, was that they, if they acknowledged her relationships with women, like her relationship with Anne-Marie, they sort of glossed over them. Um, they didn't really treat them like serious parts of her life. Whereas when I was reading, you know, her attempts at autobiography, and then ultimately when I was reading her therapy transcripts, it became apparent that she saw her life much differently and saw her relationships in a much different light. So whereas the biographies kind of positioned her as someone in a tortured marriage uh, with Reeves McCullers throughout her life, and that that was sort of her primary relationship, she saw it differently. She even wanted the Anne Marie letters to be included uh, in her autobiography when it was published, um, which they didn't actually include them. Hmm. So uh, my relationship to the biographies was sensing that there's a, there was something missing, that there was uh, an aspect to her story that even while it's kind of being disclosed, isn't, you know, being given 
the benefit of clear language. It was euphemized or it was dismissed. Um, and so I really wanted to understand that part of her life better and then uh, kind of write into that direction. Sarah, I'm tempted to ask you a very similar question. Did you find Mars or did Mars find you? Uh, but when you, you wrote about Mars' exploration um, quite evocatively, you say that the exploration of Mars has always been about more than scientific knowledge. It's been an almost existential endeavor to confront our own limitations, to learn what life really is, and ultimately to defy our own isolation in the universe. So could that be said about exploration of space generally about other planets or is there something about the martian relationship with earth that is unique and compelling this way oh it's a great question fred and and there is something in many ways it's very special about mars you know we know of no other place like even of all of the extraordinary worlds that we've now discovered orbiting other stars in addition to our own solar system no other place that's as similar as Earth. And of course, Mars and Earth were almost like twins, like when life was getting started here early in our history. And and this 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 planet took this dramatically different path than our own. Um, but the thing that has been so captivating for me about it, you know, there's so many worlds that are beautiful and amazing. And we just get bowled over by the indescribable foreignness of them all. But just this this possibility for life on Mars, you know, like we know that life got started here. Did it get started there as well? You know, and it just seems like it gives us this way of, of going after these really fundamental questions, you know, like, are we alone? Where did we come from? Why are we here? Like, why is there something and not nothing? And did that something from nothing? Did it happen once or did it happen time and again? And we potentially have an answer within our grasp, you know, Mars just the next planet over, if we happen to find life there, especially a separate genesis of life, if lightning struck twice, if we have another spark, it, it just would be so suggestive that our whole universe could be just this hatchery, all kinds of worlds and all kinds of different possibilities. But I guess when I think about it, it just seems like we're, we've got this one data point, all the life that we know of, it's the same life, it's carbon-based, it's DNA-based, it's just the same life and just have a second data point. I just think it would just be the most incredible discovery in the history of modern science. You come to life talking about this and we, we sense <laughs> your, your excitement and, and devotion to it. Do you remember a moment when that kind of started? Do you remember a moment and thinking, if I can swing it, this is what I want to do. I want to be able to study this. Oh, I do. So there were certainly like seeds of, of this, like early in my childhood, my father was a bit of an amateur astronomer and an amateur geologist. And, you know, my mother also had just this kind of insatiable curiosity around the natural world. You know, I grew up in Kentucky, didn't really travel very often beyond the state line. And then I went off to Missouri to Washington University in St. Louis for college. And my freshman year, I had the chance to meet a Mars scientist this man named Ray Arvidson, and he became um, a professor in a class, and I started working in his research laboratory, and, and it just, like, blew my mind <laughs> that there could be people that, like, spent their whole lives just thinking about Mars, and, and I do remember this moment, I was sort of off doing field work, and in Hawaii, like, up at the top of this volcano, you know, and it was just so 
cool and interesting. And I remember being so far beyond the tree line. There was just no life. I mean, it was just like everything looked like a crystallized bruise, you know, it was black and shards of purple and cinder cones. And, and all of a sudden I remember seeing this tiny little fern up there that was surviving again, sort of all, it's a little moment I write about in the book at one point, but it's just, it just seemed like it stood for all of us. It's just this defiance against the, the abyss there and just this resilience of life. I just found so powerful. Um, but I think that was the moment that it first kind of made sense to me that I want to be a planetary scientist. <laughs> and, and Alice, um, I, I guess I can't ask you whether you found this topic or it found you, but, but I do want to ask you something similar to it. Um, it's not the most obvious topic. Uh, even those of us who think we have read a lot or know a lot about the Civil War uh, and, and slavery and the process of emancipation, you know, slow and, and still continuing in some ways. And, and yet this is a story that sort of, I guess, has been hiding in plain sight. So, so two related questions. Uh, how did you see it where others hadn't? Uh, and why, why hadn't we seen it? Those are both great questions. And I came across this topic almost by complete accident. I actually started as a Mexicanist and in my first research trip to Northern Mexico and Mexico City, I was working on a topic about violence on the US-Mexico border in the mid 19th century and really trying to understand what was happening on the border after it had been delineated, but before either government really had much power on the border. And so I was looking for any document about violent conflict. And I was just shocked at how many documents I happened upon that had to do with slaveholders from the United States coming to Mexico, trying to kidnap enslaved people who had escaped there, and then facing really surprising resistance, not just from those enslaved people themselves, but from Mexican citizens. And that really surprised me, not just because I had no idea that enslaved people were escaping to Mexico, and I wouldn't have expected Mexican citizens and Mexican officials to risk their lives to protect enslaved people, but it really challenged what seemed and still seems to me to be a predominant explanation in history that people, among historical scholarship, I should say, that people act according to you know, pretty basic economic incentives. And here was an example of people not really acting the way we would expect them to. And so it took me into this rabbit hole of why were enslaved people escaping to Mexico what types of lives were they able to forge for themselves there? And why were Mexican people helping them? Mm. And the second question of why this story has been overlooked is a complex one. And part of the issue, I think, is that if you start in Texas archives, much of what you will find will say that the promise of freedom in Mexico was illusory. And that really isn't surprising, given that the people who were producing those documents were often themselves either enslavers or fully uh, committed to that system. And by 
dismissing Mexican anti-slavery, it was shoring up their own ideas about how slavery was not just a necessary evil, but a positive good. And it also had this additional benefit of perhaps dissuading enslaved people from taking the risky escape to Mexico. Mm. And so I think a lot of historians heard about this and there are some very good articles about it, but Long saw it as a really a small local story that didn't have broader significance for our understandings of slavery and freedom in North America more generally. And it really, I think the fact that I started as a Mexicanist really helped to show me documents early on that really challenged that predominant narrative. There's almost, it's a strange analogy, I, I'll grant you, but there's almost a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead aspect to it, that, that the main story is going on back in the continental United States because we all know quote unquote, that that's where the real action is. And then there's a side story and you say, well, I want to talk about the side story. And the side story seems to be actually deeply connected uh, with the main story. So talk to us a little bit about the, the legal landscape of the institution of slavery in Mexico and how that interacted with the American institution in the, uh, in the antebellum period. I was very surprised to find that Mexico abolished slavery in 1837, well in advance of the United States, elected its first president of African descent in 1829, well before the United States did too. And it passed a constitution in 1857 that not only committed itself again to the abolition of slavery, but promised freedom to all enslaved people from the moment they set foot on Mexican soil, which was more radical than what was being passed in the northern states, more radical than what was being passed even in Canada. Really, only Haiti had passed similar types of laws. And that had profound consequences for slavery in the United States, and not just in the neighboring states of Texas and Louisiana, but at the very heart of the Union. Because the U.S.-Mexico War marked the first time in U.S. history that the United States stood to acquire and ultimately did acquire territory where slavery had been explicitly abolished. They had never actually had to deal with that problem before. And the fact that Mexico had abolished slavery posed real threats to the expansion of slavery all the way to the Pacific. Let me sh shift from the, the books to uh, somewhat more um, uh, personal or career type questions. Um, Alice, I want to ask you something that we describe a lot in programs that we do on campus or a national program that we have uh, as part of helping Phi Beta Kappa members or students in, in the liberal arts transition to different kinds of careers. And one of the things we always talk about uh, is that uh, it's not not linear, this business of planning careers, uh, that you you may start out one place and end up in another place, or as I've told students, uh, it may look like a straight line uh, in retrospect, but it's got a lot of zigs and zags uh, when you're living it, or put somewhat more philosophically, uh, Kierkegaard said, life has to be lived forward and understood backward. Trying to understand it backwards, what, what were the zigs and zags? And if that's not enough to ask, uh, what would you advise, and you probably do this, how would you advise a group of undergraduates about career planning with your experiences in mind? Oh, there were so many zigs and zags. I, in college, was very unsure of what I wanted to do. 
And even what I wanted to study, which what I said at the beginning might give you some indication of but I was interested in so many different things and wanted to pursue all of them and ended up being a history major, partly because it seemed to be the discipline that would allow me to sort of do everything, but there's a history of everything. And so then you can study everything as a result of it. But I didn't think that I wanted to keep pursuing history because it seemed interesting, but not important. And I felt this responsibility to try to use the amazing education I had gotten towards you know, making the world a better place. And so after I graduated from college, I went to rural Bolivia and I worked at a free medical clinic there thinking that maybe I would want to go into nonprofit work or public health or become a doctor. And the region where I was in Bolivia happened to be right near the site of this very destructive war in the 1930s. And my patients who were incredibly sick, in many cases, incredibly poor, found out that I had studied history and started telling me their family stories about this war. And it was the beginning of the realization that the stories we tell about ourselves and the history that we understand about ourselves is really, really important. And I tell that story to students a lot because I think it's a good reminder that you never know where things will take you. You might go somewhere or take some class thinking that it will give you X and instead it'll give you Y. I went to Bolivia thinking that I was going to find out what career in you know, public health I wanted and instead it turned me back to history. Jen, you're writing about um, McCullough's uh, own challenges of discovery and self-discovery, of course, are, are so, uh, so powerful and, and so overwhelming. Um, and I, and I wonder not just what do we learn from her, but what, what you learned from her, because she is obviously navigating these questions of queer identity at a time when, uh, it, it, it can't be easy. You describe this wonderful, terrible, terrifying moment when her sister Rita, right, decides she's going to out her to their parents. Um, and her father, I, I guess, trying to be helpful, says that sister, what they called um, uh, Carson, right? Uh, sister is a, is a beautiful person, um, and you would do well to be like her. Uh, so she couldn't possibly be a lesbian because she's... And, and so he means it as a compliment, right? You, so that's her world that she's navigating through. What, do, what are we meant to learn by how she navigated it? And, and if I may, what, what did you learn about how she navigated it? Um, yeah, that moment is is so heartbreaking, and it kind of goes to uh, something that I talk about in in terms of the biographies and in terms of the time that Carson lived. That um, the response to, uh, especially for women, to queer identity, um, to any suggestion of it, was just denial. Just like, no, it's not real. No, it doesn't exist. No, it's not there. Um, and so that's really what her dad is kind of doing in that moment is just saying like, whatever that is, it's not here. We're not going to talk about it. Um, we're not going to recognize it as a legitimate thing. And so that's why I start the book with this conversation Carson has with her then boyfriend um, Reeves about her identity, where he asks her point blank if she's a lesbian. And she says, she doesn't say no. She says, I don't know. What is that? What are they like? What do they do? Because she's at this moment in time where she has no reference point whatsoever. She's grown up in a small town in the South. And this is like 
an identity that's never been made available to her. Mm. It's a category that's never even existed, you know, in her mind. And so she kind of grows up in this world where she knows herself to be different, but she doesn't really know why or how or what what that looks like or what that might mean. Um, And so she's kind of on this journey that takes really her whole life. And it's not until she's in her forties and she's in these therapy sessions that I um, read the transcripts of and and talk about in the book that she actually starts kind of putting this to language and discovering the language. But what I take from that and what I think we can all take from that uh, is, is the way that she lives her life, that the openness of that question in response to Reeves, what are they like? What do they do? Tell me about that. Her unwillingness to ever kind of put up with the silencing. She's she's always just who she is. She's always just very frank and very candid. Um, she's never really closeting herself, but people around her are constantly closeting her, right? And her biographers after the fact are closeting her. But during her own life, she's kind of living out loud. And so that meant a great deal to me because I had been in a closeted relationship for seven years uh, at the point when I found these letters. And so I was kind of astonished because I'm reading about this woman who's in the 30s, 40s, and 50s at a time when it was like basically illegal to be who she was um, when she, you know, her gay male friends are being arrested. And uh, she's just kind of living out loud in this way. And, and it was almost like a, a, a kind of courage that I took from her. Sarah, we've been talking about Mars a long, long uh, way away, um, but I want to ask you about something else you wrote, which is much closer to home. Uh, and that is that extraordinary New Yorker piece uh, about loss, uh, the period that starts, what, something like six months before the pandemic, uh, a time of just extraordinary challenge. But you write very movingly in the New Yorker piece uh, about what you learned from that and actually what you learned from that in terms of how it applies to your, your professional work, your scientific work. Would you, would you share some of, this, some of that with us? Sure. So not terribly long before the pandemic, I, I found myself in an, an ICU on a ventilator, you know, sort of with no, no sedation because my blood pressure was too low, but there'd been this medical accident and I, I ended up just kind of fighting for my life, which was so interesting and awful, but like I, it was something that I just completely didn't expect, you know, like I, I do work, field work in like these really remote places, far flung corners of the earth. And, and like there are these known risks and you sort of know about them. And I just sort of, I'm always so careful, but I just never thought like just kind of on a Monday morning that I would come so close to dying. Following this loss, I'd been pregnant actually with two babies and we'd lost them both. And then I, um, just halfway through the pregnancy and then you know during the surgery that followed there was a like a artery that had been unseen that had been nicked and I just I had liters of blood sort of pooling in my abdomen and then just I don't know this is all too graphic but anyway the point being I guess is that I just came I came like very 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 close and in those hours uh, I just was really on the edge, but in this strange way where I was also very aware that I was maybe going to die any second. And then it was just sort of this thing that kind of, I, there were all these like post-operative um, complications. There's just back in the emergency room sort of again and again all fall. And it didn't really stop until 
kind of right before the pandemic, which was a, a sort of interesting thing because everything kind of quieted down and had a lot of time to kind of think about what had happened and um, and just kind of the nature of, you know, our own lives, our own mortality. And, and I think that, you know, what I wrote about in that piece was just kind of this idea that, you know, as a scientist in particular, you kind of, you, you look at cause and effect, you like sort of think about like how things lead to other things. And, and I think I just been sort of going about much of my life feeling like there was this sort of rhyme and reason to things and you just need to understand it. You know, that's your role as a scientist. You, you, you go after kind of understanding things and, and there's this kind of sense behind it all. But, but there's also like this role of chance where, you know, just by chance, like something can happen and it's just so much, it's shaped so much of not only the history of our universe and the fact that we all come to be, you know, but then also like these individual moments in our lives. Well, I think it just has left me with this, this very strong sense of how fragile things are and it's so interesting as somebody that studies life and it's just always thought of life as just you know it just wedges into a crevasse and holds on against all odds I mean life can survive in the core of a nuclear reactor it can survive a mile under the earth it can survive in ice covered lakes I mean just all kinds of crazy conditions and like you know the coldest temperatures you can imagine but you know life at the same time is just fundamentally fragile too um, I said to each of you when you uh, uh, notified you of winning your, your respective book award that one of the things that I uh, try to do in these conversations is find the common thread. And I said, that, you know, the thing reveals itself. It's not always clear. I, I, think, I think courage, that's the common thread. Life persevering is courage. Enslaved people finding their way to Mexico of all places and trying to build a life there is a story about courage. Carson McCullers is a story of about courage. I think that's our that's our through line here in a way that might not have been obvious uh, reading these books uh, A to Z, um, but but hearing your your descriptions of them, um, I think that's what comes through quite quite powerfully and quite compellingly. Um, as Samuel Beckett said, "Try again, fail again, fail better." Um, and maybe that is the definition of courage. Try again, fail again, but fail better each, each time. Um, no failures tonight, only successes tonight. Thank you for, for being with us. Thank you for the wonderful words you put on the screen and the page uh, for us all to learn and benefit from. You're all first-time authors, which means uh, no pressure, but we're all anxiously waiting to see what comes next. I'm sure you are too. Um, I know there are projects underway. Uh, the world will be better for all of it. Uh, congratulations on behalf of a very grateful Phi Beta Kappa Society. Uh, and for all of you with us tonight, thank you for being with us for the 2021 Book Awards celebration, and we will look forward to gathering in 2022. This podcast is produced by LWC. Jimmy Gutierrez is managing editor, Kojin Tashiro mixed this episode, and Hadley Kelly is the Phi Beta Kappa producer on the show. Our theme song is Back to Back by Jan Perching. You can learn more about the works of our Book Award winners at pbk.org. And you can also learn more about the work of the Phi Beta Kappa Society and our Visiting Scholar Program on that site as well. Thanks for listening. I'm Fred Lawrence. Until next time.